So I kind of just want to start off with a, a metaphor, just so you kind of get a sense of what you should be thinking about in terms of how Christ kind of flips the power dynamics of, of the spiritual warfare we saw going on in Genesis 3. So I want you to imagine a little bit that you're 1940, you're Britain in World War II, and the Battle of Britain is going on, and it's just three months of desperate aerial warfare between the Luftwaffe and between the Royal Air Force um, and some other entities. But, but I want you to imagine that you're there, and Churchill's giving speeches about, like, we're going to fight them in the cornrows, we're going to fight them in the hedges, in the streets. And when you think about that, that's actually kind of scary language. You're like, are we going to have to do that? We're going to have to fight them in the hedges and in the streets and in our homes? Uh, it, really, if you think about it, it's an inspiring speech on one level, but on another level, it's like, things aren't going very well, are they? We're hard-pressed in on every side. So if you're the British citizen going to sleep that night, you just hope that your house isn't bombed and that you don't wake up to nothing, or even dead, potentially. You hope that you wake up and all your friends are alive. You hope that you don't find Germans marching in the streets of London the next morning. I mean, it's just every night is that kind of desperate hope for victory. So if you're the, the British, all you need to happen is to defeat the German Air Force. Then you need to get off your tiny little island, make a massive beachhead incursion into the European uh, states and nations, and then march all the way to Berlin. And if you hear me say all you need to do, a little bit cheekily, that's exactly right. That's all you need to do. It's a lot. And I want you to think about Christ is essentially that changing point in the war. He is the defense effort for the island. He is then also the incursion force that flips the war from defensive to offensive. That he's taking it from hard-pressed on every side and actually then taking it to the enemy through us and in his church, pressing on towards Berlin. So that's just kind of a little bit of a, a metaphor. If you ever want to try to think about how do we think about Christ, I think that's a pretty helpful way to kind of try to think about that. So we're going to think about um, Christ, particularly from the gospel account of Matthew today. So if you want to flip through there, we'll be going through different sections there. Um, but as we get started and as you're flipping there, the first verse of Matthew 1.1 says, and I'm reading out of the CSB in case any of you wonder, uh, it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I just briefly want to tie this into Trey's lesson just so you see how these are connected because Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we should wonder, what is that going to have to do with Genesis 3.15 where that promised uh, one, the seed of the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent even as he's going to bruise that one's heel. And so we just need to know Abraham is God's answer to these rival kingdoms that are popping up. So in Genesis 10, uh, you know, somebody like Nimrod um, is somebody who establishes Babylon and Assyria, and he's kind of the first kingdom to be reported. And then the Tower of Babel, as you're probably familiar with, happens in Genesis 10, and God scatters the nations. And then he actually raises up Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But particularly, he's going to make a great nation out of Abraham's seed. So Galatians 3.16 is going to be explicit that the promises made to Abraham are more made to his offspring. And that's a particular offspring. And some of the things that he's going to do are that he's going to possess the gates of his enemies in Genesis 22.17. And then he's also going to become a blessing to the nations in Genesis 12.3. So again, uh, Genesis 22, Genesis 12, he's going to possess the gates of his enemies, even as he is a blessing to the nation. So we're starting to see kind of a combination of, of factors here. 
Um, but another thing in Genesis 17, 6, is that he's also told that he's going to have kings come from his body, that his offspring will produce kings. And that brings us to the son of David, right? Second Samuel 7, uh, David is going to say he's going to have an offspring, a son, who will sit on his throne forever. I know Trogdor the Burninator, that might be a reference a lot of you don't get, but Ryan Troglin taught on the Davidic covenant, and um, he talked about this. The king's going to embody the Torah, lead people into righteousness, and there will be everlasting rule and peace under the seed. So you can kind of start to see how all of these are very similar. You know, the woman's seed is going to conquer the serpent. Abraham's seed is going to possess the gates of his enemies and be a blessing to the nations. And David's seed is going to establish the borders of God's kingdom, bring peace, and also bring righteousness for the people of God. And these are all being woven together right here in the very first verse. Uh, in Jesus Christ. He's being introduced as the kind of connecting point of all those promises. So that's just a brief overview. Um, so let's step into how is he going to do this? How is Jesus Christ going to be the son of David and the son of Abraham? And Matthew one twenty one particularly is going to tell us um, that she, being Mary, will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So his name, Jesus, basically means God, God's salvation, God saves, uh, and God is going to save his people from their sins. So let's just look at a couple, three different ways, basically in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that God is doing this. So the first way that he's going to save his people from their sins is by personally defeating Satan in his perfect life. So again, the first point we have there is that, uh, or as the handout actually says, let's stick with that. <laughs> Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. That's straight from 1 John 3, 8. It says there, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. That's why the Son of God was revealed, to destroy the devil's works. And so, uh, would somebody like to read Matthew 4, 1 through 11 for us? And we're going to spend some time there. Any volunteers? Ethan, will you read it for us? Thank you, Ethan, for reading that. So this is uh, one of the greatest passages in Matthew's account of how Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. So we see in the first verse there, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it's important even that we acknowledge, right, he's tempted by the devil. So again, what we said last week is 
uh, is, you know, God is not tempting anyone. This is him leading him into circumstances where he can be tempted, but God is still not the agent of temptation. It's important to even see that. Um, but let's just look at, at a little ways in, in how Jesus connects back to Adam and Eve in the garden originally. And so we want to acknowledge, right, the tempter in 4.2. It, it is Satan. It is the devil. That's in 4, 8 through 9 uh, and 10. Um, so it's clear that the tempter is the devil, is Satan. And these are rare appearances. I can think of four times explicitly that Satan's mentioned. This is the fourth time that I can think of. Now, that might not be an exact count. You all might find another time or two. But the point is, it's just rare. When you think about all the pages of Scripture to find him so infrequently named explicitly, this is a really big point of Scripture that he shows up. This is a huge point of warfare. And so uh, they're huge, and they're, uh, they're going to be massive temptations from Satan towards Christ. I particularly want to hone in that the climax of these temptations is him offering the kingdoms of the world. So when you're thinking about warfare, I want you to see that Matthew makes that the peak temptation. Who's going to rule over these kingdoms of the earth? And Satan, on some level, we have to be able to say he's genuinely able, on some level, to offer these kingdoms to Christ if he'll just worship him. And that's what the contest is going to be between Jesus and Satan. Who's going to rule over these kingdoms? And that's how Matthew wants us to see the kind of stage for these temptations. And we should just notice Jesus has every disadvantage in this fight. He goes out. He's been out there for 40 days already, fasting, and he's hungry. And the tempter then approaches him. He's even alone. I mean, yes, he's with the Spirit. And we'll talk much more about how you're not really ever alone if you have the Spirit. But contrasted to Adam and Eve, they, they had human interaction. They were with one another. Jesus has no other human support. It, it's just him out there. And so he is alone and he is isolated and hungry and tired. And the tempter comes to him at this very moment. This is just the opposite of Adam and Eve who are in Eden with all the trees and all the fruit and all the lush greenery around them. And that's where Satan meets them in the fullness of God's provision and they still fail. Christ is, is the very opposite. He's meeting them in the barrenness and fallenness of the world, and he's going to triumph, amazingly. And we actually should not miss that, the, that Jesus does this so perfectly that in 4.10, he says, go away, Satan. Now, one thing I want to tell you about just how awesome Christ is, is that he does not merely frustrate Satan. Satan doesn't go, I tried three times. And I couldn't get to him. Well, okay, I'm just going to pull back. This was, you know, fruitless. No, he, he fails so utterly that then Christ actually says, go away. And sends him away in authority. That's how perfectly Christ uh, just aces this trial in his life. And so we, we just need to see that, that Christ is demonstrating authority. He's putting to flight Satan by authority, not accident. And that he's operating like a champion, like a warrior. And I want to think about a few ways, one way in particular that this is distinct, that the, the, this uh, temptation narrative is going to be different from what we go through. And that way is primarily that Christ, when he succeeds in resisting these temptations, he does it so perfectly that he frees us from needing to go through the same kind of temptation. So what do I mean by that? In, in Matthew's gospel, uh, in Matthew six thirteen, um, we actually are told how to pray. And Jesus amazingly there says that do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
we get to pray, don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think the point being that the very opposite is what we hope for. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, as Psalm 23 would say. We get to pray that because Christ was led into temptation for us, right? He was led into this battle to do perfect warfare so that we don't have to. We get to walk in paths of righteousness on the basis of Christ resisting temptation perfectly. And that's just an amazing, amazing distinction between what we're called to do and what Christ did for us. So that's just something to note there. But I do want to offer you some encouragements from Matthew 4 on how we can resist sin in our own lives. So what are some ways that we can learn from Jesus as we encounter spiritual warfare? Uh, I think his use of scripture should absolutely be an encouragement to us. I'm just curious, if you all were to answer, what, what are some things he does differently than Eve does when she encounters Satan? What are some, what are some differences you might observe about how Jesus handles the Satan, uh, Satan and how Eve handles him? Testing how much you remember from last week a little bit. Doesn't quote exactly what God says. That's right. Jesus is, it's written, right? Any other things that you might want to observe? Anyone else want to add to that? Mm, that's right. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't entertain the thought. He doesn't take the thought in and internalize it. He resists it immediately, recognizes it as evil, and rejects it. I think those are, are two very good answers and, and basically sum up the perfection of Christ. He perfectly remembers God's will in his word, and he does not for a second entertain the evil that Satan presents him with. And so, uh, you know, even when we say it is written, uh, this is just an encouragement again to be thankful to God for the written word. I mean, one thing with Eve that's uh, interesting, we can't get into why or how all this happened, but just the fact that she forgets exactly what God says Whereas Christ has the written word, and he leans on that, that should be an encouragement to us that God has chosen to preserve his word in, in perfect, incorruptible scripture, and that we can actually go to it and say, it is written. And, and we should want to know that, and we should not just know that it's written, it's not enough to even know it, but we also have to hide it in our hearts, such that when we get pressed to the very limits of our humanity, that what spills up, what is hidden in our hearts that comes out is good and not evil. Just like Christ is teaching us that, that because he's hidden God's word in his heart, when he has nothing else to go on, that is what spills over. And so that's an encouragement. Uh, I also think he can teach us to be aware of how Satan schemes. So I think we can learn some things about how Satan schemes against us as well. So a couple things to just notice about Satan that I think are consistent in Scripture. He will approach you in weakness. Right? Notice that Jesus is out there 40 days and he's hungry, and then, in verse 3, the tempter approached him. He will not come to you at your strongest moment when you're feeling great. He will wait for the perfect opportunity to strike, and he will encounter you in weakness to try to subvert you then. And so j just know that that's, be, be wary of those kind of things. Be observant of where you may be weak, because that is where you're going to need Christ, and that is where you're going to need God the most. Um, also, just notice that he poses his temptations as logical kind of statements. Remember in Genesis 3, he says, did God really say? You know, I mean, there's just an innocent question. I mean, is that actually what he said? 
And here he's in verse 4, he's like, if, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Right? He's not contradicting Christ's identity, not directly at least. He's just musing a kind of if-then logical statement. If you're the son of God, then you I mean, do this. Why be hungry? Uh, and, and we should just know he comes like an angel of light often to us, that he comes with these philosophies. So Colossians 2.8 says, don't be held captive by deceitful philosophies, by deceptive things that even sound plausible. <laughs> we got to be very discerning because Satan is going to not seem, you know, he's not like the creepy guy who pulls up in the van. It's like, you want candy? And we're like, no, I'm not getting in that van. It's, it's much more subtle than that. It's much more subtle. Uh, also notice that he can quote scripture out of context to you. So you notice in the second temptation, right? It is written. Satan throws his own, it is written back at Jesus. He's like, oh, you, you can quote the Bible? All right, I'll try. I'll try my hand at it too. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. So one thing that we can even learn there is that, you know, Jesus is like, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus knows scripture that helps inform how to even use that psalm. And he doesn't abuse it. So, of course, we see this in the prosperity gospel all the time. Just scripture pulled out of context and used. And Satan, again, is operating like an angel of like God wants you to be happy, like Trey talked about. Well, on one level, that's true. There's scripture that says that. But in what way does God want you to be happy? How does he provide happiness to you? These are things that we need to be able to use other scripture to answer really, really well. So also just know Satan, I mean, even the demons know God is one, right? They, can, they will come at you theologically sometimes. So you need to know the whole counsel of God. That's something very important. Also, one of the things I want to focus in on most, and, and we'll connect later on, he promises an end to suffering. In the last temptation, notice that Satan's really trying to give Christ what he ultimately has come to get, the kingdoms, for himself. But he's promising him that he can get it without dying. He's saying, just worship me and they're yours. No cross, no death, no suffering. Skip all that, Jesus. And, and this is just something that I think Christ is helpful here in even taking us this far into temptation. Uh, by allowing himself to go through it, he exposes the heart of all temptation, truly. In that, at the end of the day, Satan's not really interested in you. Like, he's going to quote scripture. He's going to say, if you, if you, if you... And he's going to make it about you. But at the end of the day, it's not about you. That's not really what Satan and the forces of darkness care about. They care about being worshipped, right? That's our definition of spiritual warfare. That it's the war over whom we will serve between the Lord and his enemies. Over whom we will worship, I would also say. You could say serve or worship kind of interchangeably. Satan just wants to be worshipped. And if you worship him, he'll give you a lot of things. He'll let you be cool. He'll let you be popular. He may even help prosper you in this world. You know, that's some, something the Psalms and Job grapple with. They're like, how are the wicked prospering? And, and Satan will offer you many things if you'll but worship him. And this is exposing the real heart of idolatry. Christ is allowing himself to go through temptation, not only to be perfect, but I think he helpfully helps us see what temptation is all about. He's trying to draw us away from the worship of God. Like Trey said, temptation draws us away from God and is trying to get us to worship other things than God. So this is what happens. And, and notice that Christ's response are all God-oriented, right? That's the contrast. Satan's like, if you, then apply scripture this way. But Jesus is like, no, you, you worship the Lord your God alone. You serve only him. That's not right. And so his are God-oriented. He learns what it means to be a human 
what he means to learn. He learns what it means to be obedient by thinking about God first and then himself. So ultimately, I think these are just some ways, James 4, 7, right? It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I mean, this is an embodiment of this passage. And I think ultimately the reason the devil flees from you is, again, just to highlight Christ, is because what you're doing is just what Christ has already done. When you submit yourselves to God, you look like Christ, and you remind him of the victory of Christ, and he can't stand that. So that's what you want to do. You want to look like Christ. Perfectly submit yourselves by the word to God, and, and the Satan will flee. And so that's an encouragement some ways that we can look to Christ, and I encourage you to meditate on those things. We need to keep moving um, in order to get through. But uh, So I want you to just notice the pattern. After he destroys the devil's works, right, he goes and he starts preaching repentance in Matthew four seventeen. So we need to ask ourselves, why? Why destroy the devil's works? Well, so he can preach repentance, as we've said, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this repentance is actually going to then call disciples to him, 4, 18 through 22. He's going to get his disciples. And then in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to teach his disciples how they ought to live. And that's just the pattern of the gospel, just on a small scale. If you ever want to go anywhere, this is two, two uh, three chapters, I guess, that are really easy for this. He destroys the works of the devil in order that he can call people to repentance. And as those people are called to repentance, as they see the kingdom of God in Christ— then he teaches them how they should live as they're repenting. And that is just the gospel on a very small, small scale, is that we are repenting because the kingdom of God has come near in Christ. He's defeated Satan. And in Matthew, you know, he talks in Matthew twelve twenty nine about how you can't rob a strong man unless you first tie him up, unless you first bind him, and then you can plunder him. And that's just always why Christ, the only reason Christ doesn't just destroy the devil immediately, but instead disarms him and binds him is so that he can plunder him. So that he can save people, bring them into repentance and belief, and teach them how to live as true disciples. So that's just a good pattern. But we need to move on to the second point um, of our passage, or of Matthew's gospel account. We're going to fast forward through a lot. Matthew's great. Unfortunately, we, we need to go to Matthew 26. You're going to feel like, oh my goodness, he just skipped like 22 chapters. Uh, I encourage you to read them if you can. But in Matthew 26, we're going to see Christ also became a curse for us. So he not only came to destroy the devil's works, he also came to become a curse for us. Um, if I could get uh, some volunteers, if I could get uh, even just like five of you to read those different sections, so t- Matthew 26, 26 through 28, can people just raise their hands as they're uh, available to read that? Yes. Thank you, Drew. If you read that, then somebody will read verses 36 to 44. Thank you. And then 27, 27 to 29. Paige, thanks. And then 35 to 37 of that same chapter. Aaron, I saw you. And then if you want to read 45 to 46 of that chapter. So um, let's just read along. And again, those are all there in your handout. Uh, we'll see all of those there. Uh, okay, if people would just read those. You can read them in order. Um, so just keep reading one after another. Thanks.
Yeah, thank you for reading, everyone. Um, so I think these are just a sampling of how Christ is becoming a curse. And particularly, I'm going to try to connect these back to Genesis 3. And, you know, we might have a little bit of interaction about, can we pick up the connections to Genesis 3? So just there, Jesus took bread in Matthew 26, 26. Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Now, can anyone hear any echoes of Genesis 3 in there? Anything that you, you remember? Specifically, try to think about, I don't know, maybe taking and eating. And somebody can just spit it out if they want. Fruit from, and what, what, like, what's the connection there? Yes, amen, yes. So there they are taking from the tree and eating, which is what Satan tempts them to do. But now Christ is actually saying, I've got something for you to take and eat. And it's my body. Now, this is, of course, not cannibalism. Uh, early Christians were accused of that. But this is really, he's saying, my body's going to be broken for you, and you need to take it to internalize it. Bring, bring my victory into yourself. Be united with me in these things. And, and by taking and eating of the Lord's Supper, this is why it's even a, a privilege. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a little bit. Just as you're doing that, just hear how God is subverting all of the curse in Jesus Christ. By giving you Christ to participate in, he is undoing our original sin of taking and eating. So, I mean, this is a great reason to be part of the church and to take part in this victory. That's what we are doing every time we take the Lord's Supper. And we're going to you know, do it just here shortly. And so hopefully an encouragement is you're meditating on what it is we're doing. It's a complete undoing of Genesis 3. It's amazing. But then he continues on there, Matthew 26, saying, Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So remember, Jesus came, Matthew one twenty one, right, to save his people from their sins. That's his ultimate goal. And right here, he's linking that to this blood of the covenant. This is going to be his blood shed on the cross, which establishes a new and better covenant. Again, you all got to think about the covenants last semester. You ought to think about the new covenant. And so this is, what's, this is what's happening. The blood of Jesus. And again, so when we take the cup, right, not only, not only when we break the bread, but then when we drink the cup, um, if you can call that a cup, uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, when we do that, we are participating again in Christ's blood shed for us, forgiving us of our sins. And I also want to highlight that when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, Look at how Jesus takes a different cup than the one he gives to us, right? He said to them in verse 38, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So even as Jesus is giving us the cup of his, of his blood, of his covenant, to participate in, he himself is taking the cup of wrath and looking at it, and he's going to drink it fully. He's going to drink it perfectly and fully. And, and I also want to think just about how Jesus prays there in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is an encouragement as we think about how does Christ teach us to fight sin. Some things we should know. It goes beyond just knowing Scripture, again. It can't ever just be there. No, one interesting thing is that Matthew teaches us kind of what it looks like to be perfect, or at least to follow in Christ's footsteps uh, in different ways. So in Matthew 4, he doesn't highlight Jesus praying. 
what he highlights there is Jesus being perfect in obedience through the scriptures. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, what we actually see is Jesus is learning obedience without, without Satan there. And that's an important thing to know. Satan's nowhere in the text here. So where Jesus is going to learn obedience most profoundly is in keeping his will perfectly conformed with God's will. That's where he's going to struggle the longest, the hardest, even the number of verses there uh, in the garden are, are as long, if not longer, than Matthew 4. And he's going to have to learn that obedience, as Hebrews says, through prayer. He's going to have to keep himself in perfect obedience through prayer. So while Matthew 4 is emphasizing submission to God through his word, Matthew uh, 26 here, or 27, no, it's 26, is kind of teaching us how that's going to happen. How are we going to internalize God's word in such a way that we actually will know it and it will be hidden in our hearts and we will submit to God? And I think prayer is the answer. We need to pray scripture. We need to be praying to God continually. Jesus prays three times. I don't think that means that that's exhaustive. That's not a magical number. But in, in Matthew's mind, three is kind of a number of completion. It's a, it's a you know, sequence. It's a full sequence of events. And so you pray continually like Christ does. And he teaches us, that's the same prayer he gave us in Matthew 6.10. Your will be done, your kingdom come. And Jesus is embodying that prayer for us in the garden. Not my will be done, but, but your will be done. So in Jesus, in, in encountering his humanity, is keeping his will in perfect conformity to God's by praying the very prayer he gave to us. And that's just really encouraging because it means we should be praying that. So I encourage you to think about the Lord's Prayer and how you should even be using that. And that's something we'll talk about in our discussion groups. But then I also just want to see Jesus takes on the curse of the garden in every way. So a couple other ways that we read about in Matthew 27, um, he, he becomes a total curse. The soldiers beat him and they crowned him with a crown of thorns. Uh, what's the reference to thorns? What does that have to do with Genesis 3? Curse of the land, which is, is really, when you think about it, what's, what, like, what's so bad about the land being cursed? Like, what's the ground made up out of? What? Dirt? dirt? Yeah. Dirt, or like, you know, if you want to, it might help some of you to connect the dots to say dust. What are we made up out of? Dust. So what's the real futility when we see the land unable to bear fruit? What are we really supposed to be thinking about? Ourselves. Yeah, the fruitlessness of the ground is a reflection of what man, like in his, in his corruptible nature now, is feeling, is longing to bring forth bread and only coming forth with really thorns and thistles. And if you've been anywhere in life, you know how frustrating that is to come up with thorns and thistles over and over and over again. But Christ here is taking those thorns upon himself as a crown. Notice how both those passages, he, he's the king of the Jews. And truly he is our king in this moment by becoming a curse for us. But then they also take his clothes in 2735. They divide them up and they stand guard to make sure he stays that way. Remember how God in, in Genesis 321, he clothed Adam and Eve. But here, God is allowing his son to be disrobed. I mean, he is naked on the cross. And he is naked and he is in full shame. And they are making sure he stays that way. And God is, God is letting this happen because he's becoming who we were, who we are originally. And so in every way, uh, Christ is becoming a curse. And then he fulfills that by ultimately dying. 
the very thing promised in Genesis 2.17, that they would die if they disobeyed God, Christ even enters into that reality of the curse and participates in death with us and for us. But we have a kind of a mathematical problem, and this will be how we, we end before we move to discussion groups. What happens when a perfect man dies as a perfect curse? Does anybody know how that math equation works out? Perfect man plus perfect curse equals? Hey, resurrected Lord, how'd you come up with that one? <laughs> no, that's good. That's exactly right. This is a mystery, honestly. You would not do that math equation on your own if it were not for Scripture. But that's what happens. He becomes the resurrected Lord. So Matthew 28, 5 through 7. I'll just read these and then we will wrap up. And we don't dare miss this just because it's getting not as much time. Don't think it's less important. Then the angel told the woman, the women, sorry, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples He has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. You know, one of the horrible things about this war is that every time somebody dies, it's like it's been like just a casualty of war. It's like another person lost on the front lines of this engagement between the spiritual forces of darkness and ourselves. And that's that's a horrible reality is we see people die. I mean, we've had to encounter that this week with Cynthia, just people's bodies breaking down way too early way earlier than should ever have to be expected. And it, it's like, man, it's like losing a comrade. It's like losing a beloved person. And it is that way. So, like, what do we have? What hope do we have? Is that Christ has resurrected from the grave. And that gives us hope that death is starting to be undone. That for the first time, it looked like we had another KIA killed in action. But it wasn't quite that way. God was doing something profound such that then he's going to take us to Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. This is Jesus speaking. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I just want to highlight that all authority on heaven and earth are his. Remember Matthew 4 when you know, Satan offered him all the kingdoms? I mean, they're all, they're all Christ's now. He rules in heaven and on earth. He's been given the name at which every knee will bow. He is supreme. And, but he didn't do it through worshiping Satan. He did it through perfect worship of God, even humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, you know, you can read that Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Oh, let's just read it real fast. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses, all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. I mean, this is just... Just so you know, so when we say Satan has power in this world, one thing you should just know is that Satan doesn't have power in and of himself. God, he's not God. He's not omnipotent. His power is grounded in our guilt and in our shame, which produces death. That is where Satan's power resides. It is not in him, but it's actually grounded in us. 
So when God, through Christ, erases certificates of debt that are against us and opposed to us, Satan's power is undone. Those are the very same things. They go together. So don't ever let somebody tell you that, that Christ's victory on the cross versus, oh, he was an atonement on the cross. These things do not compete with one another. They are one and the same. And that's just good news for us. God triumphed over these authorities in Christ. He despised the shame of the cross and endured it for the glory that laid ahead of him. So I just want to just, we proclaim Christ's triumph. There's so much more we could say, but we need to proclaim that Christ has triumphed. You know, he sent us out. One, one question you may ask that I'll just at least acknowledge, maybe something that could be a skeptical question if you heard this, is that, you know, there's still death in the world. There's still unbelief, famine, turmoil, war. And one of the questions is, is Christ really raised from, because we've said he's beaten all these things, right? But, like, has, has he? Is he really with us? That, that might be the question you get. It doesn't feel like things are really that much better. Well, there's one way that they are indeed far, far better. Right, we talked about the Battle of Britain, that we need to see the beachhead go forth, that we need to see the battle go out away from our shores. Well, Christ has one, because you can actually look at the church and at God's gospel in Jesus Christ. Because even when the church gets persecuted, scattered, and even bleeds to death, it actually just spawns new disciples. Like Acts 8 is a great example of that. Stephen gets killed, and it actually explodes the word of God to different nations. And you just see that consistently. China tries to stamp out the church all the time. And it just spawns new disciples. Every time you see that, that people try to crush and press in against God now, just the very opposite thing they would want to happen happens. It feels like people are getting saved. And so you have permission to believe that the gospel is not true when it stops saving people. But it is saving people. And so I just urge anyone who's here, I mean, if you've seen and heard how Christ has triumphed, I mean, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near in Jesus Christ. Turn, follow him. He's your perfect champion. He's your perfect sacrifice. And he's the resurrected Lord. And he'll save anyone who will come to him in faith, who will be, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and will walk in newness of life after him. You can do that. You can do all those things because Christ has made them available. So I'll just end with an encouragement, a kind of uh, summary of, of Christ's perfect work for us. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, great verses to meditate on, and we'll, medi- we'll take those with us into our conversation. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, our flesh and our blood, that through death, that is his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Just praise God. Christ came and died. But in doing that, he subverted death. Because originally it was supposed to take us to judgment before God. And that's why you should never want to die. Because it's supposed to take you to judgment with God. But, but in Christ, death now actually takes those who love him and worship him into everlasting life with him. Because he's destroyed through his death, the one who held the power of death. And we can praise God for that. The plunder's begun. The nations are being saved. The gospel is true. Christ is risen. I'll pray for us, and then we'll uh, get into discussion groups. Dear Lord, um, we just thank you for your perfection. And Lord, we have not even probably began to do it justice. There are so many other verses and passages, and we could spend more time even on the ones we just read. Lord, we do pray that we would meditate just so richly on what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's 
unfathomable, your grace, your kindness to us. And we just pray that as we see Jesus Christ bringing the kingdom of heaven, that we would repent, that we would be baptized in obedience to you, that we would walk in newness of life after you, all because of what Christ has made possible on the cross and in his resurrection. And we trust that he's coming back again. Death will be dealt with one day, but for now you are kind with us so that we might be saved. You are delaying so that people might respond to your son's victory. Please let us proclaim that faithfully. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.